welcome back to uh, our study of the Shroud of Turin. In this week's episode, um, we're going to be, basically, last time, in our last podcast in Part 7 and 8, we covered the first uh, ordinary artistic hypothesis, the painting hypothesis, and discovered that it is virtually impossible. Um, I made, I made uh, the Shroud skeptic, Alan, a, a promise. So, you know, he... He doesn't like that I'm I'm not technically being correct when I say it's ab- absolutely proven, 100. percent And and he he wants uh, he I promised him that I would make a note that in in science it's it's not you know you never really get technically to 100. percent It's it's at best it's like 99.99999 percent or and stuff like that. Okay, fine. I, it's just I'm a little bit looser in my definition, so. You know, just just understand. I I'm not meaning it in a rigorous technical sense, as though I'm a, a scientist and I have to go by their definition of the word. So yeah, if you hear me say that, you can have that qualification in mind. If if you don't want me to say, well, science never gets you a hundred percent proof. Fair enough. So so yeah, um, what are we going to be doing this time in part nine and part ten? We're gonna go to our next ordinary uh, artistic hypothesis or image-forming mechanism of the shroud. That's what's called the powder rubbing and or dusting method technique. Under this, this is an umbrella category. So basically, this type of mechanism employs rubbing and or dusting various painting pigments, you know, in a dry powder form uh, or in a a slurry, as we'll see. Typically, these these will be formed using some kind of three-dimensional bas-relief or a full-size statue or human body in in some respects uh, in order to encode the images onto the shroud. Yeah, such a method is typically supplemented Supplemented by a traditional painting technique to fill in any gaps in the body images, as well as to add the blood stains or scourge marks, and uh, you know any other finishing touches as well. So, in general, that that's what the type of mechanism that we're assessing here. And um, I mentioned in a prior podcast. So some some of these mechanisms are umbrella categories. This is our first umbrella category. It, it's got. We're going to be covering three different versions or adherence of this type of mechanism. You know, the the three main shroud skeptical proponents of, of this type of hypothesis um, are, in the first place, Joe Nickel. He's a famous shroud skeptic. Going back to the 1980s, as we'll find out, he, he was around in the days uh, he was friends with Walter McCrony. We'll, we'll find out about him. The second are doctors Emily Craig and Randall Berizzi. Finally, and the most recent of which is uh, someone that uh, one of our listeners, Darren Lute, has alluded to, uh, Dr. Luigi Garlicelli. So, yeah, what we're going to do, first we're just going to outline each of these versions or theories by way of introduction to you know, what their individual techniques uh, were, who they are, and then we're going to go into assessing uh, these theories in the light of the various minimal relevant features. And in this podcast, I think we'll we'll try to get up to feature four uh, or more if we can. But depending on the timing, we'll we'll just go up to feature four, and then I'll I'll save the rest uh, for for our next part to finish off this mechanism. Uh, but yeah, and then then afterwards we'll do a. So in terms of how it's going to work, I'm going to do each each minimal relevant feature and cover all three types of these theories under each feature, rather than. Okay, well, let's look at Joe Nichols and do all the MRFs. Then let's look at, 
Dr. Uh, Drs. Craig and Breezy and, and analyze them. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do it all at once, all three at once, under each feature. It's just more time, you know, efficient that way. I think. And then obviously we'll do our cumulative case conclusions uh, at the end to to figure out is this an impro are these improbable hypotheses? How how does it fare in light of those inference criteria uh, such as explanatory power, scope, and that sort of thing? Okay, so just by way of introduction, then so our, our first powder rubbing mechanism and really one of the first proponents of this this type of um, you know image forming uh, technique is uh, Dr. Joe Nickel and he was a former stage magician he has his PhD in English so it's it's not actually a relevant field to studying the shroud he's not a scientist he's not a, you know he's not a qualified scientist or he didn't have some kind of expertise um, that allowed him to play an official role. Like he wasn't a STIRP scientist or something, or wasn't involved with, with studying the shroud scientifically in the same way that Dr. Walter McCrony was. Um, but I, I would still say he is a shroud expert. He, he is informed. He, he was friends with Walter McCrony. He, you know, he had various interactions with some of, some of the STIRP scientists, not, not always friendly, but yeah, he, he was... He does have some level of knowledge where you need to take him seriously, but you know he, he's not an actual scientist or anything like that. A little bit more about him, he is a self-avowed skeptic of anything religious. He's kind of like a Richard Dawkins type. Um, he's a senior research fellow for the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry, uh, or CSI. Uh, he writes regularly for their journal to this day, which is called the Skeptical Inquirer. He was among, as I said, the, the first shroud skeptics to propose this type of powder rubbing hypothesis back in the the early 1980s um, and he even performed some non-peer-reviewed scientific experiments to try and verify his own theory you know which, which he claimed hey I've duplicated the shroud I did it um, when he came out with his results he took some pictures of his results and that sort of thing so yeah what what is Nichols theory basically he proposes that a medieval artist conformed a wet cloth in other words the shroud uh, to a bas-relief this is different from a sculpture, and it, it's important. Um, there is an important reason why he's using a bas-relief as opposed to a statue. But anyways, so he used this bas-relief, and then he used the, the wet cloth and impressed the bas-relief's features onto the cloth. So it's, it's, this is how he's saying we're getting three-dimensional imprints into the cloth based on this bas-relief and a, a wet cloth being conformed to it, uh, to its impressions. Um, Anyways, after the cloth had dried, he then claimed that some alleged medieval artist would then have used a cotton dauber covered with a cloth uh, to rub dry powdered pigments onto the resultant impressions left on the shroud. You know, obviously following his good buddy Walter McCrony's lead, uh, as I said, Nickel has been greatly influenced by McCrony's findings uh, and he thinks it's proven that there are Actual, that the shroud's images were composed of paint, that the red iron or iron oxide pigments and that sort of thing, as we showed before, is not true. But nonetheless, Joe Nickel was taken in by this. Um, so his theory reflects Macroni's results. Yeah, um, so, so basically this is the pigment powder that it's some kind of iron oxide pigment that um, Nickel uses here. Nickel also, interestingly enough, attempts to account for the shroud's bloodstain images in exactly the same way Macroni does. So he, he's using that tempera paint, uh, which he says the blood images were then, after the body images were formed, 
then they added in these uh, bloodstain images onto the shroud. That's that's his uh, that's his theory. Okay, so the next one is the dusting hypothesis, and this is. Uh, by doctors Emily Craig and Randall Breezy. It was they, they have an article that I'll be linking to. It was published back in 1994. Theirs is quite theirs is different than the regular powder rubbing. It, it's related, but it theirs is the most different. And so, what did they say? So, they hypothesized that a medieval uh, or or earlier uh, artist first drew freehand the three-dimensional information of the body images onto a paper or canvas using some kind of pigment-like substance, you know, such as powdered alloy or some other kind of dry paint pigments, um, which were ground into a fine powder. You know, so things like what Macroni said, the iron oxide pigment suggestion again comes up. Um, but they, they don't limit themselves to it having to be that. But yeah, in light of Macroni's evidence, they're saying, well, it could be this, or maybe a powdered alloy, something like that. So right away, one thing before we move on is to note that this is different because when it comes to something like the three-dimensional imprints, and I I don't want to get into the details too much now, but just as when it comes to this three-dimensional aspect, they're more like Macroni in saying that some artist uh, just drew freehand these three-dimensional aspects. As in, remember, in the painting hypothesis, that's virtually proven to be ridiculous and very improbable. See, I'm using virtually. I'm not saying totally impossible. But uh, this theory is more comparable to Macrone's in that respect, whereas Nickel and, as we'll find out, Garlicelli are actually using objects that have inherent three-dimensional qualities in them to be imprinted onto the cloth. So that's that's a key difference there. Yeah, anyways, the, these impressions were then subsequently transferred onto the linen cloth, in other words, the shroud, through various wooden burnishing instruments. So, so Dr. Craig, for example, used a wooden spoon, uh, which he rubbed in circular motions across the back of the cloth. Whereas uh, Breezy, on the other hand, he scraped a wooden board edgewise across the back of the cloth. And then they, they both, uh, f- what's called, quote-unquote, fixed the resultant images uh, to the cloth through heating or steaming. So it's important to note here that Craig and Breezy only ever attempted to encode a facial image using their technique. They never even bothered attempting to create the full-length body images of both the frontal and dorsal sides. That, that's, so that's part of feature four. Um, okay, but surely, I'm not going to, we'll get into it, but okay, you, you might be thinking, sure, so that's all they attempted, but that doesn't mean their, te- their technique could have done a full-length body image, right? Um, well, well, we'll find out when we get to feature four. There, there's, a, there's perhaps a subtle reason why they never attempted to create full-length images as opposed to just a frontal one, uh, a facial image, sorry. So yeah, what, what's more, their experiments don't include any attempt at all to duplicate the Shroud's bloodstain images. They, they just assume, Macroni's explained it, the painting hypothesis works. And, and this is a constant thing. Ordinary artistic hypothesis, with the bloodstains um, blood on the Shroud, there are only two naturalist, ordinary naturalistic um, mechanisms which could possibly, that we can conceive of, that could explain them. The one is the one we've already covered. Walter Macroni's The Painting Hypothesis, the, the bloodstains were painted in some way, uh, either using paint or real blood with an anticoagulant. You know, so, somehow these bloodstains were painted. Secondly is direct contact, and we'll get into that later on. 
But there's a, a third option, which is com- or some kind of combination between these two. Anyways, uh, Craig and Breezy don't even attempt to deal with the bloodstain images. They assume Macrony. It was painted uh, in the same way Walter Macrony says. So one thing I just wanted to, I have a quote here from Craig and Breezy's article themselves. Um, this comes from page 5 and 16, but um, in, in regards to what types of substances um, could have been used for drawing, they, they say, well, it doesn't have to be a carbon substance or anything. Uh, they, they think nearly any material, whether colored or colorless, and which can be ground into a fine dry powder is suitable for their technique. So they don't want to limit themselves to what Macroni, Macroni's pigment particles or anything. They want to be, well, okay, if you can find some way that that's not good enough, well, you know, what about powdered alloys or, or some kind of material that's ground into a fine dry powder? We're, we're open to whatever works kind of thing is what they're saying. So they, they go on, for example, an increased permanence on linen fabric may be obtained by applying a mixture of a colored pigment and collagen and then dissolving the collagen with steam uh, in order to bind the pigment to the fibers. Or perhaps a nearly colorless alloy powder, which would be expected to form an image on uh, linen through a catalyzing oxidation. So here, Craig and Breezy are giving some kind of a head nod to STIRP scientists who say, this isn't paint, but this isn't some kind of resultant staining either. It's an oxidation or of the cellulose itself. It's being uh, you know, de- or dehydration of the actual cellulose that's calling, causing the coloration. Well, this this is more akin to what pro shroud scientists. You know, that's what radiation is. When when your newspaper turns yellow in the sun, the cellulose is being oxidized or dehydrated, and that's what's causing this yellow to light brown color. Um, and Craig and Breezy here are trying to give a head nod to that. Well, maybe it's not, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be some kind of stain through acid or whatever from the paint. It could be dehydrated cellulose as well. But anyway, so, so they go on. What One would expect modern, um, if this was true though, one would expect modern investigators to have detected alloy on the terrain. Remember, one of our additional features, uh, there, there is no such alloy or myrrh or any other biochemical biochemicals and that sort of thing found on the shroud, at least on the in- where the images are on the inside. However, they, they say, but maybe that it's possible that it was lost through washing uh, and or decomposition over time. Um, that This is their explanation for that, why it wasn't found on the shroud. Um, they go on finally, it's also possible that a colorless sensitizing substance such as a powdered boric acid and has escaped detection by modern analysis. So they're trying to say some, somehow some kind of some other substance that wouldn't be expected to be detected by the equipment used by STIRP, uh, maybe that was used. Um, so yeah, they, they want to keep their options open. So to speak. Okay, so next up uh, is the most recent, and this is the... Um, technique developed by Dr. Luigi Garlicelli, and we'll call this the quote-unquote frottage method. Uh, good French word there, apparently. Um, so, yeah, back in 2009, uh, Dr. Luigi Garlicelli, who is a chemist by trade, um, made headlines about with his uh, new theory, 
and he claims to have been able to duplicate the shroud images, proving it's a fake. Uh, once again, he's more akin to Joe Nickel. He was using a traditional, ordinary artistic powder rubbing or frottage technique. You'll recognize the name Luigi Garlicelli. If, if you remember from part five, our part five podcast, uh, this was the scientist who took part in that BPA analysis or the blood pattern analysis of the, um, the blood flow down the arm as well as the chest wound. And he conducted um, a series of experiments to, to show using BPA analysis blood pattern analysis that, oh, the shrouds, these shroud bloodstains are unrealistic. And I, I rebutted that there and said why these results are not convincing or not realistic comparisons to what we have with the shroud. And But yeah, you can check that out. He, he's the scientist who, who was involved in that forensic study, so to speak. Um, but yep, so this is uh, prior to that. This is a decade earlier. This is his theory for explaining the Shroud images. And fellow Shroud skeptic Joe Nickel, he was quick to come out praising Garlicelli for, you know, proving once and for all the Shroud was a fake, you know, complete vindication for his method. Because Joe, Joe Nickel was kind of seen as a joke in, in the scholarly community in Shroud studies that, you know, among the actual scientists and that sort of thing. And his, his technique, oh, it's total garbage and stuff like that. So Luigi Garlicelli was kind of seen as, well, I okay, I'm going to improve on Joe Nichols' thing, and I actually, I'm using something similar to him, but proving that, okay, well, Joe Nichols was, didn't know what he was doing, but he was in the right ballpark at least, uh, ballpark at least. and Joe Nichols kind of, this is vindication for me, this is what I've been saying, finally, the, here's the proof, you know what I mean? So, and it has to be admitted, um, Luigi Garlicelli has created by far the best and most comprehensive artistically created shroud duplicate images that have ever been produced to date. That doesn't mean they're necessarily anywhere near comparable to the shrouds uh, or, or duplicating its actual MRFs or minimal relevant features, but it is, it's, it's the best we've got, um, artistically speaking at least, I would say. And uh, yeah, even Joe Nickel admits his results are far superior. If you want a powder rubbing method, go to Garlicelli. That's, you're gonna get the best we've got you know, with him. Um, so as I said, Do Dr. Garlicelli is a chemist by trade and he announced to the world back in 2009 that he and his team had definitely proved uh, that the shroud was a medieval fake. And apparently he had recreated the shroud images in their entirety by using a dry pigment powder mixture in a, um, a small sack, which he then rubbed onto a cloth, i.e. the shroud, uh, is what he wants to say. This is the same thing that happened with the shroud, um, which was overlaying, here's where he's different, an, a human torso. Everything for the neck, from the neck down was cr created using the actual human body. But for the face, he used a bas-relief. He couldn't use an actual human face. And the use of the bas-relief for the facial, uh, facial or head images is essential to this method because otherwise it's, it's a scientifically impossible for this technique to work in order to avoid the infamous wraparound distortion effect. Do you remember the mask of Agnememnon where the, the, the face kind of flattens out? If, if, you have, if there is a powdered pigment used and the shroud was wrapped around the face, when you, when you unwrap the shroud, the face is going to look like it's stretched out and flat, um, like the like a flattened mask, the, the, a flattened pancake or something. And th this is called the wraparound distortion effect. So 
he, you know, uh, Garlicelli is well aware of this. Uh, Shroud skeptics like Allen even admit this. This is one of their critiques they, they use against pro Shroud advocates. They they try to say, well, the images couldn't been a, the shroud couldn't have been wrapped around when body images were formed. Otherwise, we'd have this wraparound effect. And Garlo Shelley knew this. This is why he has to use the bas relief for for the facial and and head images at least. You know, Garlo Shelley discovered um, he also discovered something interesting too because he he found out that there are various horizontal distortions. Um, and these would inevitably occur if all parts of the human body, so this is from the neck down, if they were all rubbed equally. So he actually had to limit himself just to rubbing dry pigment powder only on the most prominent body features, uh, you know, knees and that sort of thing. Or the, or the but yeah, he, so he couldn't he couldn't account for the full length body images of the shroud in this way. So what he does is he supplements this with a traditional painting hypothesis in order to fill in any image gaps uh, using a small paintbrush uh, and tradi- a traditional freehand painting method in order to paint in these body image gap areas. And yeah, I just wanted to say that Garlicelli needs does need to be congratulated because he, he did try to reproduce as much of the minimal relevant features as he could. Uh, including blood stain images, front and dorsal uh, side images. He also includes some of the tries to encode some of the weird or secondary image features or, or counter features as well. Even even some of the those parallel scratches um, he, he tried that I mentioned that are invisible with the naked eye. But yeah, so basically for the blood stains and that and these image gaps and some of these secondary features, that's where okay, Macroni, traditional painting hypothesis is supplementing his frottage method as well. So yeah, in, in terms of Garlo Shelley's claims, it just has to be said, you know, bold assertions from these shroud skeptics as usual bold assertion in order in terms of being able to duplicate these uh shroud images and found, I've, I've discovered the technique but there is an added problem with garla shelley's technique and this is the fact that he doesn't actually use one coherent single coherent technique or method which a hypothetical medieval forger could have employed to create his images. His claims or conclusions to have duplicated various shroud features are actually based on two entirely different experimental techniques, which he carried out. And these two techniques are, are contradictory. You can't put them together in order to make sense and have a final product that's like the shroud. Um, so you'll you'll see critiques online about this technique problem, where, or you know, obviously Garlo Shelley is presented as experimental procedures and and findings in in a somewhat haphazard manner. It's it's not always clear uh, to distinguish which okay which feature did you get and which experiment at at what point did you get this. He he's not he didn't do a good job in documenting what stage and in what experiment he's getting the result that he's claiming to have. And this obviously causes concern for pro-shroud scientists who want to test his, his theory and confirm what, he, what he's claiming here. So, yeah, if we, if we try to truly understand the shroud image according to his image-forming process or hypothesis, there has to be some kind of mixture. If we want to be charitable to the shroud skeptics, and you know, Darren Lute has said, well, couldn't there, couldn't there be some way to put these two different experiments together and into some kind of amalgamated effort or something? And yeah, I, I think okay, um, 
to do the best we can. Um, here's basically here's uh, yeah. First of all, I should say so. You know, Garla Shelley claims to have uh, created pseudo-negative images, images that were fuzzy, um, or in other words, image diffuseness. Uh, they reside on the topmost fibers of the cloth. Interesting that Garla Shelley is confirming superficiality. This is a skeptic. Why would he? Why would he confer? Why would he try to duplicate this if? Oh, this is just all pseudoscientific nonsense, right? Obviously, it's a fact that the images are superficial. And he also uh, has produced some three-dimensional properties, uh, as well as body images that do not fluoresce, as a scorch normally would. But yeah, let, so let, let's be charitable to Garlicelli. Let, let's try to come up with the, the best that I can come up with for an amalgamated effort, like one one coherent method that would explain it is, okay, here it is. So it's a five-step process. So step number one, a powdered pigment containing acidic compounds, he, he thinks sulfuric acid, uh, was in a watery-based slurry. Uh, and that was then rubbed onto a prepared linen cloth, in other words, the shroud, um, which was over top over a human model, same you know, for, and this was done for both the frontal and dorsal images. So you would turn over to get the dorsal images, same process, that sort of thing from the neck level down. Remember though, only the most prominent parts of the body were powdered, otherwise horizontal uh, distortions would result. So yeah, the you know things like the knees, elbows, upper legs, hands. These are the things that are being pow encoded with this frottage technique. And then later on, the gaps were added in by a painting freehand, you know, a traditional painting hypothesis. Step number two, a shallow, shallow, this is important, not, not deep, but a shallow bas-relief was constructed out of plaster of Paris for the facial image. And the same rubbing or frottage method uh, was then used to obtain the basic raw image. You know, Galashelli himself reported that although a shroud-like image could be produced by a rubbing technique on a human body, the face must be obtained by a bas-relief in order to avoid the inescapable wraparound distortion. So I, there's there's confirmation from the skeptic himself confirming what I, I told you earlier about this wraparound distortion effect. Step number three. Next, the sharp bordered scourge marks were added, um, and because these images have clear discernible borders in contrast to the image diffuseness of the body images, they were not added by rubbing, but instead the pigment, again, he follows Malter Macroni, okay, he claimed to find these pigments, we'll follow what Macroni says, and um, like Macroni, he proposed a very diluted suspension of red ochre pigment or cinnabar. Um, and um, he said that these were gently applied with a small paintbrush, which he, he then claimed, you know, gave rise to the fine parallel scratches that we see on the shroud that I mentioned to you that only are visible with ultraviolet lighting. Yeah, so, and then step four is that he then artificially aged the cloth to simulate the centuries uh, of wear and tear. You know, basically he heated the cloth in a specially designed oven and then subsequently washed and ironed it flat. The final heating process was then simulated, you know, the shroud's centuries wear and tear, as I said. And basically in the same way, why they're doing this is that, you know, Gar Garlicelli, just like Nickel, Macroni, and uh, Drs. Craig and Breezy, they all admit that there are little to no 
And in fact, as STIRP scientists say, there's none. Um, but remember, the, even though we prove that um, in the painting hypothesis, Gar- Garlicelli's thinking that, no, but Macroni, he's following Macroni, that there are proof of some elements but um, of these pigments. But um, yeah, they, they all admit that basically it's the, the acid chemical reaction that's creating the majority of the body images we have. It's, it's not the powdered pigments themselves or that's creating the color of the body images as we have it today. They, all of this stuff has eroded away. There, that's why Sturp never found any evidence for it. And uh, yeah, he basically says that the acid in the original slurry medium that the paint pigment, the powdered pigments were in, chemically reacted with the superficial layer of the linen cloth, producing the, the yellow to light brown body images that we see today. Finally, step five, and this is where the major blood stains were painted onto the cloth. Um, he also, again, using a traditional painting technique, and um, Garlicelli, quite quite thorough, actually even used a pen-sized uh, butane blowtorch to mimic some of the large burn scars from the 1532 fire. Um, you know, that could be relevant to see, well, how, okay, what's, uh, what's the reaction of these uh, artistically created images in areas next to the, scr- the uh, scorch marks and stuff like that. Okay, so, uh, geez, time, time to get into the actual analysis. So we'll start with our first minimal relevant feature, uh, the photographic negativity, as well as the high resolution, uh, including the image diffuseness uh, aspects of the shroud's body images. Well, it has to be admitted right away that all three of these methods can produce the photo negativity aspect of the shroud images. And... It, Yep, Joe Nickel and, and these guys say it, it is a quasi-negative member, irrelevant for our purposes. Whatever helps the Shroud skeptic, we're going to go with them. So fine, it, you want to call it a quasi-negative, these mechanisms can do that. Likewise, they can produce relatively highly resolved images as well. Um, so I'm going to give them a check mark here, but just be aware there is a there is a questionable element here in terms of the in terms of degrees. I mean, it, I'm going to be providing you sources for Luigi Garlicelli's images, the best produced to date. And, and he gives you side-by-side comparison pictures. Look at the face of the Garlicelli image versus the shrouds. There's a bit of a difference in terms of the highly resolved nature. One looks more fake than the other. Nonetheless, I'm going to bend over backwards for the skeptic. I'll, I'll give it to you. There, there is a relatively highly resolved nature to to these images that is apparent. It's not as good as the shroud, but uh, I'll be flexible. So, you know, I'll be generous to the shroud skeptics and I'll give this to you. Finally, what about the image diffuseness? In the first place, flat out, none of these mechanisms produce this result in and of themselves as proposed to have taken place by the medieval artist. But this effect could be explainable via the passage of time. And this is why Garlo Shelley was wanting to wash it. He wanted to to heat it, to simulate, to artificially age the shroud. Yeah, they, they basically say, well, over the passage of time, these pigments or particles decomposed or faded away or, or fell off or flaked off, uh, I should say. Um, here, here's a quote from the shroud skeptic, Joe Nickel, and he's basically lambasting pro-shroud proponents like me who raised this as a criticism, like, oh, they never found any dry powder on the shroud, your, your theory's garbage. And um, Joe Nichols says, Skeptics have offered several demonstrable methods of producing shroud-like images, although believers have hastily dismissed these, often on wrong grounds. 
such as the image areas being too sharply defined, when of course the replications have not been subjected, subjected to six or seven centuries of handling. Um, so this is his attack on people like me who critique his theory. So anyways, um, you know, th this kind of ad hominem attack uh, beside the point, I will, great, I'm going to bend over once again, bend over backward for you shroud skeptics, and I'll give you this. The first minimal relevant feature gets a green check mark. It, it can account for the negativity, the high, high resolution, despite that questionable aspect, and for the image diffuseness uh, of the body images as well. All right, let's move on to the second one. What about the body image uniformity? Well, just like with the painting hypothesis, all three of these types of mechanisms are able to account for the substance uniformity. This also applies, you know, remember Garlicelli did use a human torso, though, for, for creating his body images. Yeah, but that, that doesn't mean we would expect his technique. Like, it, it doesn't, he uses a bas relief for the face. So I, I wouldn't say we can prove, well, he's using different substances necessarily that where we would expect hair and, and skin on the face or on the head image, for example. So check mark for all three theories, including Garlicelli. Likewise, green check mark for all three theories on the density uniformity aspect. Both, all three of these techniques can create uniform densities or, or uniform maximum op optical density or darknesses of both the dorsal and frontal side images. Um, and just remember the, the bas relief the face is uh, slightly darker than than all the other body image areas, um, possibly supporting Garlicelli a little bit because um, he used a bas relief as opposed to the f the face. Maybe that's why there's a slight difference there. However, here's where the shroud skeptics utterly fail, completely destroyed. Intensity uniformity, just like with the painting hypothesis, you guys fail here because there is a uniform intensity of body image color on each and every single image bearing fabril or fiber. Remember, smaller than the diameter of a human hair, these are colored individually in the exact same intensity of, of color. It's, it's all the same uh, yellowness, if you want to call it that, um, or degree of color. And the, all of these mechanisms are virtually impossible. I would say impossible, but out of deference for Alan, it's virtually impossible. 99.999999999%. Um, the, these are, these uh, theories are scientifically falsified. Let's put it that way. They can't explain this feature. Am I lying? Um, well, let, let's not go to pro-Shroud scientists. Let's quote our good buddy, Shroud Skeptic. Uh, Walter Macroni. Oh, the skeptic himself, the ultimate, the painting hypothesis guy, the one that all of all three of these um, people look to to get their notion, their own ideas for the painting pigments and stuff like that. So they they all recognize Walter Macroni is a scientist, and you need to take him seriously. He's the one providing the proof for this that it's falsified. So. Uh, basically, he scientifically disproved um, that these theories, powder rubbing or dusting techniques, are capable of accounting for this aspect uh, because in, in testing specifically Joe Nichols, because they were around at the same time, he found that pigment powders would collect at the edges of each individual fabril, leaving a clean center surrounded by the powder. So he refers to this process as the quote-unquote snow fencing problem. Basically, the, the problem lies in the fact that each fabril in the shroud is encoded with a uniform intensity of color. 
And Macroni has conclusively proven scientifically that no one applying a powdered pigment onto the shroud via a handheld dauber or rubbing or, or, or even a, a burnishing technique like uh, Craig and Barisi do, they can never achieve this uniform intensity of color on even a single fabrille, let alone every single body image bearing fabrille as a whole. It's just virtually impossible, not not possible at all, I would say, but being scientifically technical, 99.99999% it won't happen. So, yeah, just just, you know, remember that some shroud experts say it's also cylindrically uniform as well. This isn't an MRF, but if the cylindrical uniformity is true, once again, the, these theories, all three of these theories utterly fail here. So, Right here, that this one aspect is enough to falsify these three scientific theories as being probable. I didn't even need to quote, you know, pro shroud scientists. I've got Walter Macroni, the ultimate skeptic, on my side. Um, the person that all three of these, the proponents of these types of theories, look to as evidence for their own their own notions. So. That, that I think that's pretty powerful, but uh, yeah, just going on before on, on the uniformity. Even Craig and um, Randall Breezy, with their dusting hypothesis, they did confess this as well. They they said that the iron oxide dust, iron oxide dust, remember iron oxide following Macroni, was found to be dispersed relatively uniformly on the surface of the individual linen fibers, relatively, so not actually. That that's that's their clever little tricky way of saying they didn't replicate the uniform intensity of color. They're recognizing this snow fencing uh, technique. And later on, they say, uh, so, you know, it is well known that the texture of a drawing surface affects the way pigment, uh, powdered pigment, will transfer from a brush. For example, brushing across the surface of woven fabric deposits much pigment uh, perpendicular to the yarns in a way that has been referred to as, quote-unquote, snow fencing. They're recognizing Macroni's results. The, the skeptics proposing their own theory are honest and recognize this as a problem. They go on, though we found that snow fencing and pigment movement can be reduced. Reduced, okay, but not eliminated completely by first applying dry pigment to a relatively smooth drying surface and then mechanically transferring that pigment to the final uh, textured material with gentle rubbing, blah, blah, blah. So just these are the shroud skeptics being honest about their own theory. They're recognizing this snow fencing technique that was, you know, th this should lend confidence that I'm not just giving you bias and that sort of thing, right? It's coming from the skeptics themselves. So I hope that will help to convince you that I'm not just making stuff up a bit more than, um, you know, some of you guys look to the sources and believe me, but, you know, the principle of enemy attestation, I'm giving the skeptics admitting this is a problem. So yeah, what uh, what about Garlic Shelley's method? And again, it, it's the same as Joe Nichols. It, it suffers in the exact same way as uh, Joe Nichols as a powder rubbing method. Um, Again, we would expect to see these uh, at a microscopic level. We would expect to see these snow fencing uh, effects that Macroni suggested. In the words of a pro shroud expert now, uh, Thibault Heimberger, and I'm going to include a link to his article. 
Um, and he's described the problem thusly. So at a fiber level, unfortunately, we, we don't have colored fibers from Garlicelli's ex actual experiment under the microscope for us to analyze. However, it is uh, doubtful that the color distribution of Garlicelli's fibers resembles that seen on the body image fibers of the shroud. If the results from a chemical reaction between impurities associated with a pigment and the fibers, we have to assume that the color is more or less spatially distributed as the pigment was. Therefore, um, it is difficult to imagine that the color in Garlicelli's hypothesis could be uniformly distributed all around and along the fiber as a very thin coating. To the contrary, Macroni has proven we have to assume that we might see some kind of many um, you know, colored, we would have a patch or snow fencing effect. And with Garlicelli specifically, this problem is even more pronounced because uh, not only does he utilize a rubbing or frottage method, a powder rubbing method, uh, to encode the more prominent areas of the body images, he, he also supplements the body images or those image gaps. Remember, he only encode using the frottage method, he only encodes the prominent areas of the body to avoid hor various horizontal distortions in the images. Well, as we saw with the painting hypothesis, painting freehand, you're not, it's, it's virtually impossible for you to get a uniform intensity of color. So yeah, Gar Garlicelli is e even worse than the other theories which don't postulate supplementing, uh, painting in body image gap areas. Okay, uh, so next up we have the third feature, and this is the three-dimensional or tri-dimensional information of the shroud images. Now it has to be admitted up front. All three of these, um, at least two of these, and, and to some extent maybe the other one, but not to the, uh, yeah, okay, so let's put it this way. At least two of these have been proven to encode at least some three-dimensional information um, via the bas-relief, or in Garlicelli's case, the bas-relief plus using an actual three-dimensional human being. There's inherent three-dimensional data there, and it has been scientifically documented beyond all reasonable doubt that while they can encode some details, they cannot account for the entirety of the true, quote-unquote, true tridimensional information as, encode, as seen on the Shroud's body images. So let's start out with Joe Nickel. His was the earliest, the powder rubbing. And his method uh, was... Uh, rigorously tested by STIRP scientists. The results didn't produce anything close approaching to what we have with the Shroud's images. Uh, Joe Nichols' technique is garbage. Uh, it's a, As I said, it's a joke, and it's seen as a joke by experts for a reason. There's a reason Joe Nickel is latching on to Garlicelli's results instead of saying, no, 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 look at my, my results. Are, he, he recognizes that his is rubbish, I'm sorry to say, but um, anyways, Nickel also produced photographs of his method as well, and these were tested by STIRP scientists using the VP8 image analyzer in the exact same way uh, the Shroud's negative images or negative photograph images were tested with this technology. Guess what, skeptics? Complete failure. Nickel, pathetic. It's, it's horrible. Throw, throw this in the garbage. Um, and don't believe me, Shroud skeptics? Well, let me bring in some more skeptics to back me up. Fellow uh, dusting mechanism advocates Craig and Breezy, they've admitted that the amount of three-dimensional information produced by Nichols' method was substantially limited by the inherent, inherent, interesting, so impo 
virtually impossible because of the use of a bas-relief sculpture. The inherent qualities of the bas-relief sculpture inhibit the three-dimensional aspects, and nickel failed here. In addition, image distortion was introduced as a fabric draped over a three-dimensional sculpture was removed and then flattened to two dimensions. Nichols' theory doesn't do this. This is a quote from fellow shroud skeptics cutting them up. Now, furthermore, there, there is an additional practical problem that is inherent to Nichols' method specifically, and uh, or not specifically, but uh, yeah, with nickels and the use of the bas-relief instead of a full three-dimensional figure like a body or a statue. So this technique can't create these subtle lateral distortions. This is sort of getting into feature number four, those vertically mapped wrapping distortions. Yeah, so so nickel, I guess I'll get a bit ahead. So, so nickel has postulated, oh, but maybe the bar, he thinks he's smart and he's not, but he, he's like, oh, well, the bar reliefs themselves were built. They, they had these inherent distortions already on them. Why, why the heck some medieval craftsman would create a bas-relief with inherent wrapping distortions specifically to make it look like a vertically they're vertically mapped or that sort of thing uh, or that it's it's a, a body dra a naturally draped cloth over overlying a supine body get real skeptics I'm sorry it's it's this is garbage there's no such thing there's no historical precedent for such a quote-unquote pre-distorted device uh, so that's totally historically implausible it's nonsense. But let's say it was plausible. Let, let me be generous for half a second. Big fail, Nickel, because even if it's true that somehow miraculously medieval artists created a pre-distorted bas-relief with these wrapping distortions, in order to work, the artist would probably, ha very probably, have had to have sacrificed some of the distance information that's revealed by the lightness and darkness or the the color density of the body images themselves. You know, consequently, this defeats the entire purpose of making the pre-existent distortions in the first place. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Joe Nickel, this is pathetic. Uh, it's desperate and garbage. You're a fool if you believe this is true. Joe Nickel has responded to this. Uh, again, it's it's a pathetic, desperate little response, but he, he's trying, oh, well, so, well Sterp was using uh, a bad photo. That That's why they got the results. That... that um, that's why they, they didn't get good results with the VP8 image analyzer. Uh, first place, in the first place, no, Nickel. It's, it's scientifically proven that your, your test is garbage, even if we had good photos. Secondly, these are the photos you provided us. You know, Take better photos of your work then if you don't like the photos we're using. Um, so this is just a deceitful and desperate attempt on Joe Nickel's part to cast doubt on the fact that his method fails miserably as even fellow Shroud skeptics admit. So, yeah, so, okay, Craig and Breezy, I, I mentioned Shroud skeptics cut up Nichols' uh, technique, but what about theirs? These guys are actually somewhat worse than Nickel, believe it or not, because they postulate the 3D information was encoded onto the shroud, or technically the paper or canvas, was hand-drawn. So it's it's just like the painting Hypothesis of Macroni. They're, they're again trying to say that somehow a medieval artist was able to draw, uh, not paint this time, but draw three a three-dimensional information uh, in the full-length frontal and dorsal body images. It's it's just as we saw with the painting hypothesis. This is impo virtually impossible. However, just before moving on, the, it is important that Drs. Craig and Breezy 
did try to go into detail in their article, and again, this will be provided in the sources, but they did try to describe their quantitative and qualitative experimental results in regards to the three-dimensional features. So there, there is, look into that. Uh, there is something to look into here. But again, at the end of the day, the results were unsuccessful in creating three-dimensional information. It suffers the exact same critique. It's, it's virtually impossible to reproduce this feature using any kind of hand-eye-brain coordination, drawing or painting a carbon-based pencil or a, a paintbrush or whatever. It, it's been scientifically proven. It's been documented. It's, it's just not going to happen. Even modern certified forensic artists with help and the most up-to-date scientific equipment and knowledge, they consistently fell short of the mark. They could produce fair correlations, but they could not come anywhere close to reproducing the shrouds three-dimensional nature. And I just wanted to give a quick quote from someone we've heard of before is Isabel Pixack, the art expert. She is, has written, again, I'll attach this in the sources, but she's got an article responding to specifically to Craig and Breezy's methods. And here's what she says. So, quote, unquote, the success of the described method, Craig and Breezy's, incorporated in the new image-making theory of Drs. Craig and Breezy, wholly depends on an initial drawing created by the use of carbon dust and or iron oxide uh, pigment powders mixed in uh, with a binder and transferred from paper to canvas with a wooden burnishing spoon, um, which is, so that's a simple depression method, and steam. This initial drawing, in order to have the above described qualities of the shroud, would have to uh, introduce a degree of draftsmanship that we cannot produce even today. She's referring to the Dr. Jackson's experiments in that, uh, Jackson, uh, Jumper, and Urkeli. You know, at least not without the agency of modern photo methods underneath the drawing itself. Uh, yes, in the Middle Ages, this kind of draftsmanship was just non-existent. Okay, so I'm just quoting biased people, right? Trout skeptics, wrong. Let me quote Craig and Breezy themselves. You know, they've said, using uh, advanced scientific equipment and know-how, they've admitted that they were only able to obtain a partial shroud-like 3D effect of the face. Remember, they didn't try to create the whole body image. They just tried to do the face. So uh, apparently, even their best images of the face uh, produced using their technique they themselves admit it wasn't comparable to the shroud's three-dimensional facial image. They they couldn't they couldn't duplicate the shroud uh, properly. Yeah. Uh, what about Luigi Garlicelli's three-dimensional technique? So, once again, Garlicelli is is an honest shroud skeptic. He's not like Joe Nickel. Um, he's he's a little bit more honest, and he himself, once again, he admits that at best his technique only reproduced quote-unquote, some of the Shroud's three-dimensional effect through his experimental technique. And just so you know, even his more modest claims here are still disputed by various pro-Shroud experts, but, but still, it, it's an important caveat. The Shroud skeptic proposing this theory himself admits, at best, even if we're generous to him, he can only reproduce some of the Shroud's three-dimensional effect. Not good enough. You have to duplicate all of it if this is the way you want, if this is the true theory. So, yeah, none of Garlicelli's results produce quote-unquote true three-dimensional images. Instead, it's, it is almost uh, made of sort of, it, it's flat plateau, it's contact and non-contact areas. So there's either image or there's not images. There's no gradation 
like we see with the shroud. It, it's either you get a, in the VP8 image analyzer, it's either you get a flat plateau, which is the contact area, or you get a steep valley, which is the non-contact areas. And there's, you know, abrupt vertical cliffs, uh, which have been documented between them. This is completely contrary to the shroud. It has true three-dimensional properties. It has fine variations within the altitude, just like a human face does. And various STIRP scientists ha have expressed you know, this type of concern and um, with Garlicelli's frottage method. And they, they've also mentioned, but, you know, with all, as with all bas-relief efforts, this will always produce a result that has some three-dimensional qualities in it, but it does not, however, upon closer scientific scrutiny, match the entirety of the three-dimensional effects as seen on the shroud. And this is especially the case with regards to the facial image in particular. Yeah, so some scientists have noted that in Garlicelli's 3D body images, um, you know, going outside the the face, the hands, for example, they're in, they seem to be embedded into the body, going in. It, this isn't true 3D effect like what we have with the shroud. Uh, likewise, the legs, they they're very unnatural. They have, they have various lumps or or bumps on them. Again, not consistent with the shroud image. This is a big problem. Again, I'll, I'll give a quote from a pro-shroud uh, expert, Heimberger, who, again, I, I've put his article in the, in the sources. But he says, quote-unquote, we must realize that modern artists and researchers, including Garlis Shelley, know what they have to work with. They, they know that they have to work in such a way to produce these three-dimensional properties or, or the photonegativity or the image diffuseness. Guess what? Up till now, they have all failed. What is the probability of a medieval forger who obviously could not have purposely had in mind producing these properties? Therefore, you have to s suppose these properties were produced by pure chance, just like Macroni and all that. They, they just happened naturally and accidentally. What's the probability of this, says Heimberger? Probably about 0%. That's for you, Alan. Not 0%, but about 0%. In other words, this method does not work in practice, even if it could work uh, in theory. Uh, so that's Heimberger's quote there. Um, so yeah, I see we're approaching the one hour mark. Okay, so final feature, the fourth feature, and this is the vertically mapped wrapping distortions, the full length body images, and you know, no body size, that sort of thing. So number one, all three of these types of methods or hypotheses can readily account for the no body sides or tops of the head images. You know, the use of a proper bas relief, or in Craig and Breezy's case, the restraint in the original drawing canvas, just like, you know, it's a bit weird, but with the painting hypothesis I gave, I gave this, that a painter might not, it's possible they can paint no body sides or tops of the head's images, you know, who knows why, but okay, I'll give it to you, Shroud Skeptics. So yeah, even Sturp scientists themselves have said, you know, if great care was taken and a shallow bas relief was used, then the no body sides or tops of the head's images are consistent with a bas-relief method of image formation. So green check mark for you shroud skeptics. Okay, but let's get into um, the more problematic areas. So starting with Joe Nickel's powder rubbing theory. Joe Nickel proposes a wet cloth was fully pressed onto a bas-relief by some human artist. So with the full body images, let, let's just assume you know, it, it, it is theoretically possible. It would require ideal conditions. But let's say some human artist was somehow able to conform the wet cloth precisely to the bar relief in every single area in order to produce continuous body images, frontal and dorsal side. 
Uh, therefore, there are no likely non-contact zones. Every area is a contact zone. It's a bit of a stretch. I'll give it to you, Shroud Skeptics. However, just bear in mind, there is that questionable element. So I, I myself find it questionable, but if you want to be generous or something like that, yeah, may, maybe another thing you could do is uh, if there are were any gaps, you could do what Garlicelli did in a traditional painting technique filled in any noticeable image gaps. So yeah, there are questionable elements to that. However, furthermore, uh, Nichols' method uses a bas-relief, and this is where the big problem comes in. As we mentioned in the three-dimensional features, the, the bas-relief inherently fails to encode these subtle wrapping distortions needed to explain the shroud's vertical mapping feature that John Jackson proved mathematically. And this is because the wrapping distortions seen on the shroud reflect an encodation process that precisely matches that expected from a vertical straight line or, or rectilinear and or curvilinear imaging path from the body and lying in a supine position to the overlying cloth. And or, you know, obviously if you have a cloth collapse or a supernatural radiation hypothesis, the cloth itself collapses into the radiation, in that case, in a vertical direction in the direction of gravity. But yeah, Nichols' theory just by definition does not envisage this, uh, you know, a body-shaped object being used at all. It, it cannot account for this feature. Like I said, any notion that the bas-relief itself had distortions that were pre-made into it is just historically ridiculous and misguided. You'll believe anything. I mean, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you if you think this is the case. But even if we bend over backwards for you skeptics and say somehow this miraculously took place, okay, great. Then you explain the vertical mapping distortions, but you can't, by definition, explain the three-dimensional aspects. You have to sacrifice one to get the other. You can't get both at the same time like we have with the shroud. These explanations, nickel is pure garbage. This ball relief, same with Garlicelli, they can't explain this feature. Okay, what about Craig and Breezy's dusting theory? Once again, by definition, it fails to account for the vertical mapping, vertically mapped wrapping distortions that are encoded on the shroud. In fact, this feature is entirely ignored completely in their article, or at least when I read it, I didn't see it. But yeah, they, they just seem completely oblivious um, to the to this kind of thing. They, they just don't address it. As we said, even if they did, we know from the painting hypothesis, it's the exact same problem. These guys are hand drawing uh, something onto paper to transfer to the shroud. Same, same problems. You can't, you can't account for these vertically mapped wrapping distortions. What about full length body images? And Here's, I alluded to this earlier when I was talking about the steaming, remember? And, and why, why did Craig and Breezy conveniently, quote-unquote, only attempt to recreate the Shroud's facial image? Why not the full-length images? Well, Shroud expert and art, uh, art expert Isabel Pixak describes it this way. So, quote-unquote, it is one thing to create just a face, as these researchers did, but is quite another to carry the technique through a 14-foot length with a double image of a six-foot-tall man. It also, remember, they fixed the images to the shroud through heat and steam. It would also be impossible, or virtually impossible, if I have to qualify, to evenly steam that length with medieval instruments. This is a historical implausibility. We know that designs in the Middle Ages were woven into the fabrics, and many of those have survived to this day. 
Stencil works on fabric, by contrast, never claimed any great longevity. Besides, the shroud image does not have the visual qualities of a secondary depression image like their method would produce, but it's, it more resembles a direct photo portrait without being one. Um, so yeah, here's the thing to remember. It would be impossible, given the medieval instruments at the time, to evenly steam such a large image. That's why they couldn't, using their technique, produce full-length body images uh, like we have at the Shroud. Finally, what about Luigi Garlicelli? So he did use an actual human body to encode the body images from the neck down. But then he had the model simply turn over onto his stomach in order to create the dorsal image in the same way. Now the problem here is that the Shroud's vertically mapped wrapping distortions are directly matched uh, to each other on the frontal and dorsal images, uh, and they reflect an identical position. So here's the problem. This type of scenario is very improbable to occur using a human model who simply turns over. I mean, maybe he'll be three centimeters off or in a slightly different position than he was when he was on his back. Maybe his arm is off or something like that. So they wouldn't line up. Furthermore, even using the bar relief to create the face and then the dorsal head images, these wouldn't be expected to be precisely aligned. Because as, as uh, Sturp scientists have explained, to achieve an image, the cloth must come into contact with the bas relief. The shroud's wrapping distortions are very subtle. To achieve the same distortions with a bas relief, a separate, a second and separate bas relief would have to have been used, one for the frontal and then a second one for the dorsal image. Dr. John Jackson has noted that a shallow bas relief would appear to actually complicate reproducing this, these wrapping distortions that we have on the shroud. Wrapping distortions are consistent with an actual human body and a vertical projection of that of the body image. So yeah, it's actually an inconsistency here that the artist would have anticipated this requirement and then been able to execute it with the realism observed on the shroud, you know, with, with a, a contact-dependent mechanism like Garlicelli's is, such as a, a bas-relief method. You know, what, what else? Uh, additionally, Gar Garlicelli's method is, it, it's unlikely that the powder should have been lost evenly in all of the areas of the image. Um, so this is, again, with response to the continuous full-length images. Actually, what we would should expect to see with Garlicelli's method is a, a patchwork or patchy images, not continuous images that we see with the shroud. What's more, the frottage method clearly failed to account for the likely non-contact zone. You know, ba basically, Garlicelli's shroud image is made up of various accumulations uh, of more or less dark stains without any half-tones. You know, again, there's just no color at all in non-contact zones. It, a one or a zero, you know, in computer talk, um, it's all or nothing. There's no gradations like we see with the shroud. There's no half tones or halfway marks kind of thing, like between the nose and the cheek, for example. This method wouldn't account for this. Instead, we would have patchy effects. Garlicelli did postulate the use of a traditional painting method to supplement his images, right? These image gap areas. So in that sense, you could say that there are no not true, there aren't any true non-contact zones um, because they would be painted in by hand. But yeah, I, I, f I find that questionable because it, it means that you have to postulate a human artist could have painted the gaps in such a way as to be consistent with the rest of the images created through his frottage method and still be you know consistent with these vertically mapped wrapping distortions, which are very subtle. You know, 
no making no errors at all in in this regards to this aspect and this is just virtually impossible i don't see it i don't see it happening no human being on earth has the hand eye brain coordination necessary to accomplish such a feat okay with that uh so we're on to our fifth feature the image superficiality but uh we're over we're at an hour 12 mark uh one hour 12 minute mark so i think we'll stop here and we'll save the rest for the part 10 podcast and finish off this image forming mechanism uh analyzing the features and giving our overall conclusion so uh Uh, Thank you for listening and have a great day, guys. Bye-bye.